Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. In the mid to late 18th century, uh, the Industrial Revolution started. It heralded unprecedented social and economic changes in what historian Eric Kopsbaum calls the most fundamental transformation of human life in the history of the world. And its legacy, its legacy reverberates still today. Our guest today is Emma Griffin, president of the Royal Historic Society and professor of modern history at Queen Mary University of London. Welcome, Professor Griffin. Hi. So uh, let's start with uh, the build-up to the Industrial Revolution. Maybe you could give us a picture of what life was like before, say, the 17th century or uh, the 16th century. Okay, yes. So I um, always think that, I mean, I do view the Industrial Revolution as a fundamental break, really, between older patterns of life and the modern life that we live in today. Having said that, obviously, it was very drawn out and it's very difficult to say when precisely it happened. But for me, the fundamental difference between a pre-industrial society and an industrial society is pre-industrial societies are basically living off the land in some kind of way. So they're obviously growing all their food locally and consuming their food locally. I mean, they might be importing a bit of food from abroad, but they're basically living off what they can grow locally. But much more than that, everything that they manufacture is also coming out of the local environment. So um, their clothes, for example, even quite primitive societies will do some manufacture. They will wear clothes, they will build houses, they will have shoes. And in a pre-industrial society, all of that manufacture, as well as the agriculture, is also all coming out of the land. So the houses are made of wood and the shoes are made of wood that is grown locally. Or maybe the shoes are made of leaves that come off the trees that are there in the, the, the environment. Um, the clothes are grown out of um plants that grow locally and there's a kind of complex process of manufacture where you kind of harvest the plants, you dry them, you turn them into thread of some kind, you weave it into cloth. So the manufacture can be quite um, complex. I mean, there's a lot of manufacturing going on in pre-industrial societies, but they tend to be using local resources. Most of them will be organic resources that have come out of the ground and they will be local to that particular community. And one other thing I think we could say is they're not creating more than they need themselves. So when they manufacture their clothes, they're manufacturing clothes because they want clothes to wear, not because they want to sell clothes to other people in other parts of the world. So they're not trying to create a surplus. They're not trying to create a profit. They're trying to manufacture just because they need goods. Now, that's a really big simplification. Many, many pre-modern societies were much more complicated than this. But that, I think, gives a broad brush as to how the majority of people were living across the globe before industrialization. They were local societies where all the food and all the manufacture, the great majority of the food, the great majority of the manufacture was produced and consumed locally. Yes, I, I, uh, Russ Robertson, George Mason University once quipped that we try by local. It's called the Middle Ages. And of course, the poverty was was dire. Uh, but then in the beginning of the 17th century, things started to happen. In 1640, I think it was, you base, uh, Great Britain basically deconstructed uh, the whole royal bureaucracy. Um, 
and a little bit later you had the glorious revolution. So I'd like to know what happened then in Britain that sort of paved the road for industrial revolution. And uh, one point I noted is that the foe at the time said that this has been this in 1720, this is the most prosperous in history. And some climaticians also think that the wages were the highest in history. Uh, so what happened there? Yes. OK, so that's uh, lovely that we're going back to 1720 and Defoe and also what you're saying about the Middle Ages. Now, of course, if you talk to um, a medieval historian, they'll say, oh, no, life was much more complicated than that in the Middle Ages. And there was a lot of trade and there was. And I don't want to um, undermine that. Britain and other European nations and other global nations were also doing some manufacture for overseas sale. It's just that it wasn't very much and it didn't impact most people. So these two things are true at the same time. And the Industrial Revolution is really when the tipping point really changes. So, I mean, if we go to Defoe in the 1720s, I think that's a good point to start as any. I mean, I think by this point, I mean, this is pre-Industrial Revolution in Britain, but Britain is still um, in many ways very unusual in how it's, you know, it's become very unusual in how it's organising its economy. And one of the things that's evident by the late 17th century, the early 18th century, is Britain is really quite a wealthy nation. It's not unique in that. There are other, I mean, the Italian states, they had been very wealthy in the 16th century. The, um, the Dutch Republic, the yeah. Netherlands, exactly, very wealthy in the 17th century. So there's very often a, a, a nation that is wealthier than its neighbours. There's nothing very unusual about that. By the early 18th century, Britain is probably one of the wealthiest per capita nations in the world. Um, and, you know, this is this kind of mantle passes from one um, country to the next. But I think there's something quite different about why Britain is becoming wealthy in the 18th century to the story for the Netherlands in the previous century or to um, Italy in the late uh, in the 16th century and earlier. And I think part of the reason but those nations, and we could bring in Spain and Portugal as well at this point, I think, those early modern, late medieval, early modern nations have tended to grow rich because they are very good at trade. Um, they've got very efficient commercial navies and they are very, very good at trade. And they are exploring. There's a lot of exploration going on all over the world. Um, Spain and Portugal discover gold and silver. That gives them wealth for some period of time and just controlling the trade routes. The East contains all the luxury goods that people want in this period. And if you control those trade routes, you can you can grow rich. And that is what Italy does. And that's obviously what um, the, the, the Netherlands do subsequently. But there's another way to get rich. Another way to get rich is to uh, manufacture more goods, to, to do more manufacturing. So not just to trade, not just to insert yourself on trade routes and to, to monopolize the luxury trade market. You can make goods and you can sell them. And I think Britain is already doing this in a really effective way by the 17th, well, so by the 17th century, certainly by the time Defoe is writing. There's just a lot of manufacture that's going on. Now, if you're a very small country like Britain and you want to do a lot of manufacturing, you need raw materials. And what's happening in Britain, by certainly by the 18th century, is its demand from its manufacturers is, ex is, is ex exceeding what Britain itself can supply. If you think about the old traditional society, you manufacture the things that are in your local environment, your local trees, um, the plants, the wildlife, the nature, everything that's around you. That's what you're using as the basis for your manufacturing. There just isn't enough to satisfy the needs and the, the demands of British industry. So what Britain is doing is not just trading with other parts of the world, it's also 
investigating the possibility of getting resources from other parts of the world. So cotton, most um, memorably, it, it's it's traditionally we've exported, we've imported fabrics from China, made up fabrics that have already been made into cloth. The cloth is what's exported. What Britain starts to and, do. And India, right? And India, exactly. The cloth is made in India, the silks are made in China, the goods are manufactured overseas, and then they are imported to Britain as, an, as a manufactured good. What Britain is trying to do is figure out where it could get raw materials from. One of the stories of the 18th century is finding a source of raw cotton in 18th century and then doing the manufacturing in Britain. So that's really very different from, say, if we look at what um, Italy had been doing or the Italian states, the Venetian traders in the 16th century. We look at what Holland is doing in the 17th century. They're not trying to get dirty raw materials that they will manufacture at home. They're trying to trade in luxury goods. So Britain is really trying to do something very different at quite an early stage. It's trying to get raw materials and feed them into its own domestic manufacture. So its manufacturing um, sector is starting to, to kind of pull away from its European neighbours. So so then about the, <coughs> in 1780, things start to change pretty radically. You see the factory system uh, coming up, uh, especially in textiles. What's uh, what's happening there? You're moving from the cottage industry to much more efficient kinds of uh, manufacturing. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think very much the story of the British Industrial Revolution has always been about the factories and the machinery. And the factories and the machinery are very novel and they're really important. Um, the idea of doing these tasks that traditionally have been done by hand at home, very often by women, very often for, for, for no pay. People have been kind of making textiles not to make a profit, but because they need clothes. It's just an extension of agriculture, the, the textile industry. So um, it's very interesting that the, the application of technology to these ancient tasks and the consolidation of the work in the factory historically are really important and really interesting. But one thing that people tend to have noticed when they talk about these, because this is the kind of the visible outward appearance of the Industrial Revolution, is if your factory is going to operate, it needs a lot of raw material because you're just processing masses and masses of material, far more than your cottage worker was ever producing um, in her own home. You've got a massive demand for raw material, and so a very important and rather overlooked part of the story is where does that raw material come from? In the case of Britain, we're using a raw material that we can't even produce in Britain. This raw material is traveling thousands of miles across the, the globe, is turning up in ships in a kind of a dirty, unprocessed state, is being sent to these factories in Manchester and elsewhere, cleaned. It goes through multiple, multiple processes, Firstly, cleaning, spinning, eventually weaving, and then you've got the fine finished cloth. And then a lot of this cloth does the same journey in reverse. It goes back onto the boats and then it's sent over to the east where it's sold um, for a profit. So, so there's lots that's going on here. I mean, it's partly a story of technology, but I think um, another very important part of the story is a story about Britain wanting to um, consume much more. And it's a, it's a hallmark of all um, industrialised societies, of a society that wants to consume much more than its local environment can produce, um, and therefore needing to exploit the resources of other countries, other nations, other parts of the world. This is a really important part of our industrialisation story. It's one that gets much less attention than the factories and the machines and the, the steam and the smoke and all the rest of it.
Yes, the, the demand side is, is definitely important. Uh, just a follow-up on, on the textile sector. Um, it seems like the Industrial Revolution, or at least up until 1820, was limited to the textile sector and also big iron. Um, I think there was trade protect protection from Calico, uh, from India. Um, was that a major reason why the, why the sector blossomed? And uh, why was it only this sector? Why was it only textile? It's really interesting. So I think obviously the it did start in it started in Britain and it started in textiles and it makes us all and, and I think the effect of that the legacy of that has been to make us all think that industrial industrial revolutions are something to do with textiles and Britain and factories and all the rest of it. Well, I think the breakthrough did come in textiles, but actually when you look at British manufacture. Um, in the 18th century, you see um, a vast amount of innovation across every single sector. Um, so, for example, in the 1760s, I had a nice little handbook for the Society of Arts and Crafts, uh, no, the Society of Arts in the 1760s, um, and they were offering prizes um, for inventions, basically. And this was quite a few years before the start of the um, invention of the spinning jenny, which is basically the process of it takes what you were doing on a spinning wheel. When you do a spinning wheel, you do one spindle at or you spin one spindle at once and scales it up. The spinning jenny had the same principle, but you had six spindles and then quite quickly you have 12 spindles. So you start spinning multiple spindles in one go. Well, long before this was invented, or a de good decade before this was invented, this society, this London-based society, is offering prizes for somebody who can come up with a way of doing this multiple spinning at once. So it's sometimes presented as a bit of a kind of a, a stroke of genius. But I would say, actually, it was very much part of the culture in British manufacturing to try and improve your methods. And that's not always the case. Many manufacturers in many parts of the world have not wanted to improve their methods or change their methods. They've wanted to stick with their quality methods. They want to stick with the way that they know how to do things. But there's this real drive to do things differently and to innovate. But one of the other things that's really interesting when you look at this is they're, not, they're offering prizes for spinning, but they're also offering prizes for somebody who can find a way of making textiles out of carrots, for example, things that obviously never come to anything or somebody who can make money out of the bee industry. Again, makes you know, it comes to absolutely nothing at the time. If you look at some of our European nations, um, you go over the over the way to Denmark, for example, later in the century, Denmark has an industrial revolution. But it's all or largely based on the uh, pork industry and on butter and on cheese. And of course, if, if Denmark had come first, then industrialization would bring to mind cheese in everybody's mind. Of course, we don't think of cheese at all when we think of industrial revolutions, we think of um, textiles. So what I'm trying to say, it's a long-winded way of trying to say, um, there's something that underpins industrialization wherever it happens. And it's important that we grasp what that is all about. What's really going on is this desire to manufacture goods much more intensively, um, much more aggressively, and usually, nearly always, you will have a need for raw materials that outstrips what your local environment can provide. So you will be uh, bound into other relationships with other parts of the world to supply you with your raw materials and also who you can dump your product on as well. So it's a, it's a much more international story that we think than we think. And I think thinking about the British textiles, I mean, yeah, that is where it all started. But if it hadn't started there, I think it would have started somewhere else with some other industry at some point in Europe. And it's a little bit misleading to think that what needs to be explained is the textile industry. There was just very sophisticated 
manufacturing across the board in Britain. The iron industry would be another example where they're really important. You did mention it, obviously, really important innovations are happening in the iron industry as well. But you could look at the paper industry, um, the making, the manufacture of umbrellas, um, the making of wheels. There isn't, you know, there's almost any any element of British, your clocks, anything you look at, you'll see that British uh, manufacturers are doing it quite well. Um, and I think there could have been a breakthrough in many other areas previous to um, the actual breakthrough that happened where and when it did. And and that's just a kind of a quirk that it happened in textiles. It doesn't have to be textiles. And other uh, we see very clearly other parts of the world industrialised perfectly well without much in the way of a textile industry. I, I think there are, there are two things that, that strike me. First is that much of this innovation, well, we had a scientific revolution in the 17th century, uh, but very little of the innovation that, that we read about are based on science. And in fact, um, in fact, if you look at the steam engine, for instance, um, the the final tweak, that, the final things that have been done that actually led to the railway are actually tweaks. Uh, they're not the inventions of completely new. Many of these products already existed. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing that strikes me is that, uh, first of all, this is the age of celebrating entrepreneurship. Um, and many of these entrepreneurs come from very humble. Uh, we, you know, we still think of, Great Britain is a class society. It was even more so back then. If you look at Austin's herons, for instance, um, but Stevenson was illiterate, the inventor of the railway. Um, Arkwright also came from very humble beginnings. This is fascinating. What did the nobility do? The ones who went to Oxford and Cambridge? It is so fascinating. I agree. It's really interesting. Um, let's go back to double back to your first point on scientific culture, because I think yeah, you obviously need some kind of scientific culture, but you can also have very sophisticated scientific cultures that don't lead to industrial revolutions. And you could go to 18th France, century France. France. Exactly. Yeah. They're fantastic at science. I think this is a really good. I mean, France pivots to industrialization very quickly, but later than Britain, but pivots very quickly. I think it's able to do so because it does have a fantastic scientific culture. So it is important, having that scientific culture is important. But what's really interesting in, in the English case is it's a combination of both a, both a scientific culture and an inquiring culture that is there in the background. And then uh, you mentioned you might talk to Joel Mocker, I hope you do, he's the expert on this, he'll be able to talk about this much more um, effectively than I do, but there's certainly that there in the background. But when you actually curiosity. Yes, when, yeah. exactly. And, and he, you know, he's, he's really brought that to life for us. When you actually look in Britain at the inventions and the inventors, the story is exactly as you describe over and over. They are uh, produced by men and it is men um, who are not part of elite scientific culture in any way at all. They are very often manufacturers, uh, small scale manufacturers, sometimes actually doing the manufacturing themselves in their own home, on their own equipment, with their own hands. Um, and tweaks is the word for it. It is people who are using the machines. So they're very often working class, but quite successful working class, you know, I mean, not in utter, utter destitution, but they are the men who work with the machines, the men who mend the machines, who see a way of making a slight improvement to the machine and also quite effective at um, communicating their ideas and monetizing their ideas. Um, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. One of the most interesting things is that you um, see so many of the inventions, I mean, so the really significant inventions are driven through by men who do not visit libraries, who work for a living um, and who have their hands literally on the machines 
and are manipulating the, the machines with their own hands and somehow see a way of making an improvement. And I think that's very much part of the British culture. And it's much less evident in French culture in the 18th century, although you certainly, there is not that different France, but it is slightly different. Um, and there is less evidence of workmen having the confidence, the capacity, the resources, because it always needs a little bit of money. Any kind of investment in, in an invention requires some money. Um, and if you're a workman, it can be a huge, you know, it can be half a year's salary or something, income that you're trying to, to procure in order to, to build your prototype. Um, but you don't tend to see scientific um, endeavour on the ground in France in the same way as you do over in Britain, because there is this real culture of improvement in manufacturing. And as I say, Britain just looks slightly different to many of its European na nations. It's not vastly different, but there is something slightly different in the way manufacturers are behaving by the 18th century. Yeah, and and we have an episode. We have an episode with Arthur Diamond where he talks about mass tinkering um, in the yeah. starting in the 1840s. Everyone was trying to improve something. So let's talk about that period. Uh, what Deirdre McCloskey calls the Great Enrichment, starting in 1820. This is where you're starting to see uh, two percent growth. Sounds modest today. It's nothing compared to China, but it was unprecedented in the world up until then, and it was most importantly sustained um, after 1820, which also hasn't happened before for that longer time period. So here we enter what what Carlyle calls the mechanical uh, age, um, where we also have very gloomy description, but it changed society completely, and you saw innovation also in other sectors. Uh, so the Industrial Revolution spread from textiles to almost the rest of the economy. You saw the rise of services, financial services a little bit later. Tell us about the mechanical age. What did Carlyle mean? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, so I think um, is, you know, in Defoe's age, a century earlier, Britain was quite different, but it wasn't obviously different to the rest of its neighbours, because still a lot of the work that's being done is being done by hand. Most people still, you know, make their living out of agriculture. There's a big proximity, you know, close proximity between agriculture and industry. So Britain doesn't look very different, although I suppose what I'm trying to say is actually when you scrape away, Britain is different in the 1720s. By the time we get to the 1840s, the 1820s, 1840s, um, Britain is not only different, it is starting to look very different from the rest of Europe. So I think 1820, mass, mass, it's become quite clear. Mass urbanisation. Exactly. We're a much more urban nation, so it's very clear we're an urban nation. Um, we have the growth of the factories, so most of Europe doesn't really have factories, and they certainly don't have steam, you know, factories that are being driven by steam in any number in the early 19th century. And we've got these huge cities growing up in the north of England, Manchester, Birmingham is starting to look very different, and masses of medium-sized towns all around the big cities and in South Wales as well, um, where everybody is a worker, everybody's manufacturing. Very often they're all manufacturing the one thing. They're manufacturing woolen cloth, they're doing cotton cloth, they're making nuts and bolts they're um doing some form of iron making i mean there's a there's a concentration town by town on a particular industry um a lot of it is very heavy it's very smoky it's very dirty um people are working in large factories that's a novelty the steam engine is powering these factories they pump out a lot of smoke they're very noisy 
it's just obvious that something has happened in Britain that has not been happening in the rest of Europe. The other thing, of course, that's really started to become apparent by 1820s is Britain is a, a kind of a global uh, is a global leader. It's the is controlling the seas. It wins seems to win every single war it gets involved in. It's defeating its uh, foes or in all sorts of different parts of the world, most obviously and memorably in France next door. It's clearly at the top of the global pecking order um, and, and, it, and it's a different kind of society. So, of course, this provokes a lot of interest in the rest of Europe as to what on earth is going on, what England is doing, what Britain is doing, and of course, whether they can do it as well. And there's from the 1820s, there's a lot of attempts to try and spy on English technology, trying to import it into neighbouring um, European countries um, and, and trying to model, basically trying to catch up, model what they're doing and to catch up. And, and Britain tried to stop this, right? Uh, tried to Absolutely. stop the spread of technology. All sorts of rules um, to pre- or laws to prevent you exporting English technology, but they never really work. People always, there's ways around and you can always find some Englishmen who will um, cooperate with you in order to set up a factory in Switzerland or wherever it is that it might be. Yeah, it's a leaky bucket. It's a leaky uh, bucket, yeah. <laughs> well, one thing that interests me that you talk about in your book, A Short History of the Industrial Revolution, um, is you talk about, uh, well, maybe I can quote this, uh, whilst the fit between technology and uh, industry is convincing in the case of Lancashire, is that where Manchester is? Mm-hmm. Uh, the industrial history of many other towns and regions demonstrate the complex relationship between innovation and industrialization. So you have Manchester and, and uh, uh, but then on the other hand, you have Birmingham, not too far away. So something different happens there. Absolutely. And I think, again, this is kind of what I'm trying to say is that we don't want to get too, we don't want to allow Manchester and Cotton and the factory to dominate too much. Because even in Britain, you travel, I know, 100 miles from Manchester down to Birmingham. You've got a very different model of industrialization. You've still got lots of workshops. People are working in very small units. Um, there's a lot of hand manufacture. Um, but what, it, what what you've got around that area is you've got iron ore and you've also got coal. Um, so you've got people um, manufacturing, a very different form of manufacturing. Um, but what you've also got there, and you see it in Belgium as well, you see it in other parts of Europe, you see it in parts of Germany as well later in the century. So there are two ways really that you can extend your capacity to manufacture. You can do so by getting resources from other parts of the world. And that's what we see with the cotton industry in particular. You're getting that cotton from somewhere else. What you see with the iron industry, which is a really important part of industrialization, is um, you see the, the reliance on coal, really. And historically, for manufacturing, people haven't used coal. They've used a bit of coal to heat their houses. But you can't make iron. It's very difficult to make iron out of coal because coal is full of impurities. As soon as you heat it up, all those impurities come out. They go into your iron and they just they ruin it. So they, they, nobody could ever work out a way of heating and, and doing the smelting and the forging of iron owing to coal because it was just too technologically complicated. And what we see in Britain at this time is all sorts of ingenuity and investigations to figure out ways to do that. So we see a very different kind of industrial revolution occurring around Birmingham, one that depends very heavily on coal. I would argue it's still the same kind of borrowing of resources of kind of beyond what the natural environment can produce. I mean, you do obviously get the coal locally, but those coal deposits really are organic um, 
deposits that were created millions of years ago and have been lying under the ground. So, so in some ways, you're borrowing resources from a different geological era when you use coal. Um, and I, I view that as actually quite a, a similar act to borrowing resources like cotton from a different geographical place. Um, it's the same kind of thing in that you're no longer relying on agriculture and what you can produce locally. Um, you're, you're, you're really got demands that are beyond what agriculture can produce for you. It was definitely a paradigm shift and perhaps the first time in human history that we could harness and save and use energy when exactly. we wanted to in the form of coal. Exactly. Um, I wanted to return to, to the consumption side of this. So um, we have the takeoff of sustained growth in 1820. Um, wages didn't go up that much, but they started, they turned around about the time when, when, Engels, when Engels wrote his, uh, um, his, his tract on, on how horrible the lives of the working class was, and we'll talk about that in another episode uh, based, on your, based on your book, Liberty's Dawn. Uh, so tell us a bit about, so this, in about 1850, there was a, a second uh, consumer revolution First one was at the beginning of uh, the Industrial Revolution. People could, you know, buy more than one piece of clothing. But now, all of a sudden, people could afford quite a bit. Uh, and there was enormous excitement uh, around entrepreneurship. I think London Times have, uh, celebrated entrepreneurs in a way that we wouldn't do today. So what happened? Uh, what happened that? And especially, why was the why was the Victorian Exhibition? I think it was 1951. Uh, so important. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, lots, lots that you're asking me about there. So, what's going on? I mean, well, let's jump forward to mid mid-century. So, the middle of the 19th century. Now, we've got lots of Europe and the US um, clearly starting to industrialise as well. But Britain is still a kind of a confident leader of the pack, um, a kind of a sophisticated, wealthy urban nation. I think um, those comments that you're making um, about being um, for the entrepreneur, those kind of pro-entrepreneurialism. I think that's very true of mid-Victorian culture, very pro-business. Um, and I think it's probably, although it's rather been written out of our history, I think that was probably something that was really, had been part of British culture for a long time, that there was something good and honourable about making money, about making goods that people want um, and selling them for a profit, good quality goods and putting people to work and making jobs. Um, there's actually quite a lot of positivity towards all of this, all through, I mean, back into the 18th century as well, um, that it's good to work hard and it's good to make money. Um, we see this very much, I think, in contemporary American culture, where they're very pro uh, the small businessman, they're very pro uh, running a business, making a business, you know, making money, making a profit out of a business. There's, there's great positivity. I, I'm always very struck with the, the way Americans talk about business and the kind of the single, the, you know, the, the, the sole businessman and how this is a very positive thing that we see much less of in Europe. I think it is true for, for Britain in the 19th century as well, actually, there was a lot of positivity. It may well be that some of what we see in the US is something that we were exporting uh, with British settlers moving out to the US, you know, from the 17th, 18th and 19th century. I, don't, I mean, I don't know, I speculate there. Um, I, I think that's very true. Um, I think there's also more generally within the culture a great it's a great moment in mid-Victorian Britain a real moment of national pride um a, a kind of a feeling that Britain is a a rich self wealthy civilized successful nation that it's the most 
um, successful and civilised nation that the world has ever seen. And there's this great pride in Britain and in being British um, that is really evident in, in the mid-century. And things like the, the exhibition of 1851 are demonstrations of that. They bring this all together, this pride in being British, uh, pride in the monarchy, the pride particularly being rooted, though, in manufacture. So it's not because we're producing great works of literature or great works of art or because of our scientific culture. This pride is linked to the fact that we're really good at making things and selling them. And the Great Exhibition is an embodiment of that. All the wonderful things that we can make and sell and trade all brought together in the Crystal Palace to demonstrate to the world. Yeah, I think at that time there was a meeting between Queen Victoria and uh, Napoleon III of France agreeing to build the Channel Tunnel. And then they started several times. So there, there was this bubbling optimism. Uh, engineering Absolutely. can solve everything. Absolutely. There were also, I mean, at this time, they were also starting, there's some very fanciful ideas about how they were going to make underground trains um, that would zip around with all sorts of weird forms of um, being powered, and vacuum, all sorts of things that were never going to work. But yes, there's, 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 there's definitely this enthusiasm and this great belief that we can engineer our way out of all sorts of tricky problems. Yeah. All right. So um, let's talk about um, why this was a revolution. I think that the term was was coined a century later by uh, by Arnold Toynbee, so it was a little bit of a, a retrospect. So, did people think of this as a revolution at the time, and what's the reason for calling it a revolution? Yeah, that's a lovely question. So, as, um, as you say, sorry, as as you yeah. say in the book, it was much much slower than China, so it wasn't it wasn't rapid the progress, so it didn't it didn't feel like a revolution. No, it did not feel, it could not really have felt like a revolution um, in the same way. I mean, I think it, it is much more rapid and much more condensed within somebody's lifetime, what's happening in China today, for example. Um, well, I think the Industrial Revolution, there were French commentators in the 19th century who were started, who, who really coined the word, first of all, the Industrial Revolution. And they were thinking about their political revolution in France, the French Revolution. And that's a very big moment, obviously, in French history. And by the 1820s, there were some French commentators looking in Britain and saying, well, they haven't had a political revolution like we did, but they do seem to have some form of revolution. And they actually start using the word Industrial Revolution. So we don't know if Toynbee picked up on the word because he'd read those texts or whether he also independently came to the idea of an industrial revolution. But I mean, I mean, historians, I'm sure you'll know, and many of your listeners, we love to, to sit around and talk about whether we've got the right term, whether it's the right word, whether it's accurate. And we're certainly, we love getting our students writing essay questions about whether it was, you know, whether this term, the Renaissance or whatever it might be, has any value or meaning nowadays. Um, I, I'm very happy with the idea of an industrial revolution because it is based in manufacturing industry, so that works quite well for me. Um, I quite like the idea of a revolution, not because I think it was quick, but because I think it was so significant. I think when a country undergoes industrialization or an industrial revolution, it is so dramatically transformed to the way that it was prior to having that revolution that for me it's the it's the magnitude of the change that you know not the speed revolutions I mean it's the revolution isn't it it's the turning in a revolution it doesn't have to be a quick turn um it has to be a turn is what makes it a revolution and I think that the turn the change is so significant but it is certainly true that in Britain it was occurring slowly 
I don't think anybody in Britain had any sense they were living through a pivotal moment in world history um, in the way that we now understand um, the world to have changed around the 18th and the 19th century. I don't think people understood that. But they did know they were in a period of change. And I think that's very interesting. If you look at people writing in the 18th century, they didn't think the world was changing. They might have thought Britain was a great country, but they didn't think it was changing in really rapid or significant ways. And this understanding that you're living in a changing world seems to be a creation of the 19th century. And I think that is also actually quite interesting. We all now expect our children, don't we, to um, grow up in a very, you know, for their lives to be very different from the lives that we lived. Um, and we think the same, you know, they, they already know the same will be true for their children. We know the world is a changing place. And that is unusual. For most of human history, people have not thought that the world is a changing place. They thought the world is a fundamentally stable place. So I think that's another just interesting um, perspective on industrialization, that it really changes our understanding of the world and our place in it. And there was much more optimism back back then, right, compared to, to today. You have a lot of doomsday scenario, but what our children are going to live through. Absolutely. I think, well, with the rise of global warming, we see a very different spin on the, um, the the growth of wealth. I mean, in the 19th century, it just looked like the nation was getting richer and we could now, many people who had been hungry in their childhood could now afford to feed their children really well. And for them, that was a good thing. This was not something to be uh, sniffed at. Now, of course, we uh, we don't want our children to go hungry. But now that we take that for granted, uh, we are certainly more perceptive about the, the risks um, but this new form of production that we all live with carry. Yeah, also artificial intelligence, the end of jobs. Uh, exactly. There are many fears like that. Exactly, exactly. So, well, maybe we'll skip what, what some of the reasons why you talked about some, uh, for instance, entrepreneurship. Uh, what, what strikes me, though, is that um, if you look at several of these factors that you normally think about, well, trade, well, Spain had more trade, property rights, well, France had stronger property rights. There was a lot of expropriation through acts of parliament for uh, for building the railways. Um, free trade uh, was much more pronounced in, in France. Actually, Britain was a protectionist country at the time. Science was not institutionalized as in France. So entrepreneurship or the, 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 the optimism, the, the tinkering uh, explains what happened in Britain much more than many of the standard explanations? I think so. I mean, for me, um, you know, I mean, it is a bit of a, it's the silver bullet, isn't it, that we're all trying to figure out quite what it was that was going on in Britain. But the more I am looking at it, the more that I'm thinking about it, I just think culturally British manufacturers are just behaving in a different way to most of their European neighbours. And I think the same would be true if we went all the way over to China and India, where generally... um, You want to carry on producing your goods to a high standard in the same way as your father did, um, in the same way as your family has always done. You don't want to necessarily make a lot of change to the way you manufacture things. And that is very different in Britain, where you are constantly looking, or or our workmen and our manufacturers at every level, from the, you know, from the person operating the machines right up to the owner of the the, the larger enterprise, everybody, every echelon at every point in the scale is trying to look for a way to do things slightly differently um, and more profitably. Um, and I, that just seems to be a cultural difference. I don't quite know where it came from. I don't know quite when it took place, um, but there is this difference. Um, and it seems a very um, significant part of the story about why Britain starts to diverge from its European neighbours when it does. Yeah, so 
But speaking about the European neighbors, first Belgium, then France, and then about 1850, Prussia, maybe also Bavaria, uh, and especially after 1871, other countries start to catch up. And it seems to me that many of this growth model that Britain had is starting to hit diminishing returns. You see you know, Humboldt universities and vocational training system coming up in Germany and Germany rising. Um, and uh, I think about 1870, there's a depression. And after that, Britain stagnates and other countries, um, other countries catch up and then the US gets richer than, than, than Britain. So why did why did Britain stagnate? It seems like this whole model of adapting to opportunities, it seems like a model that would be flexible um, and it wouldn't lead to this kind of stagnation. Yeah, very interesting. Okay, so it does lead to a kind of stagnation, but I think, um, well, if we think about how nations, nations that had been rich previously, we go back to the Venetian city-states or we go back to the Netherlands, for example, when they start to decline in importance, they really start to become poorer. Um, it's not just that they become relatively poorer, it's they actually become poorer as well. When we look at what's going on in Britain in the late 19th century, Britons don't actually become poorer. Um, they actually steadily, slowly, you know, living standards stagnate. just inch up. Well, they stagnate, but within decades, they're inching up again. I mean, by the time you're in the 1910s, you've got much higher standard living standards than you did in the 1870s. By the time you've moved forward to the 1940s, you've got much higher living standards again. The 1980s, vastly higher living standards than the 1860s or wherever it is we go back to. So although there are periods of stagnation, what you don't have is reversal. You never really get reversal. Since once you industrialise, you don't really get reversal. And what we see happening, what I think is happening in in Britain in the 19th century. Sometimes it stagnates, sometimes it goes up again. Over any period of 100 years, you see rises rather than falls. Um, historically, that's that's unusual. That's not really the way living standards work on a global scale um, over the past. What's happened? Everyone else is catching up. So what, yeah. what, what, what felt, you know, what felt amazing um, in Britain in the 1860s, um, by the 1900s, you no longer feel like you're one of, uh, you know, you feel like you're one of many. Other nations are catching up. Everyone else is growing richer across Europe in other parts of the world as well. So there's this definite loss of advantage. But losing an advantage is not the same as moving backwards, which is you know, I, th I think it's a really important part of the story that we need to remember. But Britain carries on moving forward, living standards inch up. Sometimes they stagnate for sometimes quite long periods, but they always move in an upward trend again. Historically, that's just really, really unusual. This is not what has happened until the Industrial Revolution. The vast majority of people in every single country are pretty poor and pretty hungry. They have one outfit, one pair of shoes. And at certain times of their life, they're very likely to go quite hungry because there's not enough food to go around. That's the reality for people across the globe and across time until you hit industrialization. And it ceases to be the case for many people in the West today that they only have one pair of shoes and they only have one pair of clothes and they feel hungry. And if anybody in the West goes hungry today, it's not because there isn't enough food. It's because we're not getting the food to the people. You know, we're wealthy nations. We can easily afford to make sure that nobody, the food is there. Go and look at the bins, basically. The food is there. It's just not reaching the right people. Very different from pre-modern times where the food actually wasn't, but sometimes it wasn't reaching the right people, but very often there wasn't enough food as well. Yeah, definitely. As Macmillan said, I think it was in 1950, you've never had it so good, uh, even though that was the period of relative relative stagnation for, uh, for Britain for a couple of decades. All right. So, um, 
What about Queen Victoria? Uh, she was, I mean, this was a, a Britain that was maybe unified for the first time. Um, it had, uh, there was a standard language emerging. You had canals and then railways. What was Queen Victoria's role? She, she seems formidable, but it's hard to pinpoint what she did to, to support this culture. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you're moving me into high politics, which is not where I'm most comfortable. But I think um, if I were to say one thing about Queen Victoria, well, she was a very stable monarch and she was a monarch for a really long time. And her reign kind of coincides with a lot of stability in British history as well. So I think she provides a kind of a coping stone and, and helps to provide British people with a sense of identity and a sense of unity and a sense of cohesion. But I think that's not just her alone. I think that's connected with all sorts of wider forces, and particularly that we are in this period of uh, mostly rising wealth and mostly of, of peace. Not entirely, there are wars during this period, but mostly a period of kind of stability without great, I mean, you know, a lot of Europe is going undergoing revolutions of various kinds um, and other parts of the world are losing wars. These kind of things aren't happening. And it was later in the 20th century, we have great disruption in world wars, but there is this kind of stability over the whole period. And I think it, yeah, I would say it gave people a sense of identity and pride as well. She was certainly something, you know, part of big, a lot of pride in being British and um, in the, in the, 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 the growth of the empire at this time. There was no 1848 revolution in Britain. Um, even even socialism or communism was sort of say Fabian. It was very gradual, but there were there were quite a bit of social movements. There was the Chartism. There was a lot of activism. I think women had a very strong role in that for um, legislation and working conditions. So there was quite a bit, but it was gradual. It was not... It, exactly. It's yeah. really the British story. And there is so much more to say, really, about what is going on for the lives of ordinary people underneath this veneer. So we have this veneer of contentment and stability and prosperity. I think the story for working people in Britain at this time is much more complicated, really interesting. And I know we're going to have another podcast that hopefully can kind of pick away a little bit more and um, challenge in some ways that story of kind of Victorian peace and prosperity and uh, get into some of the more dirty details about life for the actual workers. We look forward to that. Maybe just for closing, you could uh, tell us a little bit about the main legacies of the British Industrial Revolution. Yeah, okay. So I think the legacies, um, you know, very quickly it ceases to be the British Industrial Revolution. There are revolutions all over Europe, in North America, in uh, the US and in Canada, over in Australia. Um, By the early 20th century, Japan is industrialising. So um, in some ways, it's not the legacy of the British Industrial Revolution. I think that's the start of a really large, a really a a truly global process that we're all still very much um, bound up in today. If I was to say there were, well, I think there were two main legacies of industrialization wherever it happens. One is a rise in living standards. Um, Industrialization makes people uh, richer. Um, It makes their life more complicated and not everybody gets your shares in the games, but generally you have richer and more prosperous, usually more stable as well at some point, but you certainly have richer citizens. Um, And I think it tackles hunger in a way that has never really been tackled on a global stage as well. It it, it has the power to eliminate hunger and early modern societies tended not to be able to eliminate hunger. 
or certainly not agricultural societies in of the form that I'm familiar with. Um, the other big change is pollution um, and environmental degradation. The hallmark, if we if we accept that the hallmark of an industrial revolution is this desire to um, use more resources um, and to use resources more intensively and to make more things that can only be sustained by grabbing more stuff out of the environment, whether that's coal from where you live or somebody else's resource, cotton, some other part of the world or whatever it might be, intensive agriculture so that you can produce more milk, so that you can mass produce cheese or whatever it is. All of those activities, it doesn't matter what you're doing when you industrialize, you will use more power, you will more use more resources and you will start, and this is what we see in today's world, you will start to make a real mess of the planet that we um, inhabit in doing so. So I think those are the two main legacies. They're very contradictory. On the one hand, there's the rise of living standards, which I think we can say is a good thing. On the other is the environmental damage and the kind of the breakdown of our e delicate ecosystems, which I think most of us would say is a bad thing. So a very complicated legacy. Uh, Professor Emma Griffin, thank you very much for being on Innovation Matters. Thank you.